in my understanding, my uh, when I was learned as a kid, is sectarian is when you refuse to actually work with people. But the modern view is sectarian is if you criticize people. Hello, and welcome to the 95th episode of From Alpha to Omega. Today is Thursday, 14th of February, 2019, and I'm your host, Tom O'Brien. This week, we welcome Mike McNair to the show. Mike is a long-time political activist, author, and tutor-in-law at St. Hugh's College. He's also a regular contributor to the Weekly Worker newspaper. Today, we discuss Mike's seminal work, revolutionary strategy, Marxism, and the challenge of left unity, and talk about the history of the 20th century and how, as Marxists, we can hope to learn from its failures. We are also going to be studying this book as part of our upcoming reading group series, so get yourself a copy. It's an amazing read. If you'd like to take part in the reading group series or vote on the next choice of book, why not sign up as a Patreon for the show for only $5 a month, which works out at about only $1 an episode. We are well on the way to 50 Patreons, which will mean a Patreon-only podcast every month, and fortnightly if we reach 100. To those with extra cash lying about who donate at higher tiers, get extra benefits like a personally handcrafted commie badge, choice of topic slash guest, and even a one-on-one call with yours truly. So if you'd like some of that, you too can become part of the gang gang by clicking that there Patreon button. This week I had the new Patreons Marcus O'Neill, Cage433 and Isaac Cohen to thank. If you'd like to comment on the show, please do so on the YouTube channel. I try my best to respond to each and every one of them. Also make sure to like, subscribe and share. And you can join me on Facebook or Twitter too. Okay, to the interview. I've just fairly recently reviewed the acts of James II's Irish Parliament, which display on what the the manifesto, as it were, of the ideological character of James II's uh, project. And so there's a tendency towards a French solution, but there's also an equally powerful tendency towards a Dutch solution, which is, of course, what in the event happens, which is uh, that English aristocracy slash bourgeoisie invite William III and Mary in to kick James II out. The result is that we then get uh, very substantial institutional changes. And so the Whig historians wrote a narrative uh, of this process which said it was absolutely inevitable, and indeed Christopher Hill, indeed, that it was inevitable after 1641 to 60 that there would be 1688. Yeah, And then, on the other hand, the Tory revisionist historian said, no, no, that wasn't the underlying tendency. The underlying tendency was towards uh, absolutism, strong state, French-style regime. And the answer is that actually both of these things are untrue because there's an intense series of contradictions existing in Restoration English society, which are both driving towards full Catholic absolutism and driving towards the overthrow of absolutism and the creation of the sort of regime which was actually created. And in a sense, we're in the same situation now with slightly different relations, somewhat different relations of forces. There's a 
profound tendency at the moment towards right-wing nationalism and social conservatism is very visible in a large number of countries. There's a much, much weaker tendency towards endeavours to create left-wing alternatives to this sort of stuff. But the, the outcome can be either. It doesn't have to be. It isn't guaranteed that we wind up with uh, Trumpism everywhere. It isn't guaranteed that we wind up with uh, some sort of left alternative everywhere. So contradiction, in that sense, in relation to the analytical Marxists, they wanted to wipe out contradiction from the categories that Marxists can use for analysis. So why did they want to rule out contradiction if it's one of the strongest elements of historical materialism? I think they thought, at one level, they thought rightly that contradiction had been used as an excuse. The arguments from contradiction had been used as an excuse for pure game playing, very visible in Maoism, this this, uh, use of Mao on contradiction as an excuse for anything, but also equally in uh, Jerry Healy and the Workers' Revolutionary Party in this country in the 1970s. Everything was contradiction. It's bubbling. It's always the the class struggle is bubbling below the surface. It's about to break out in radically transformative ways. So that it's a can be an excuse for not actually making assessments of the concrete. So I'm saying there's contradiction in the situation, but there's the dominant tendency at the moment is tendency towards Putinism slash Hindutva slash Trumpism slash I can't remember what the name of the shrine is, the uh, uh, Japanese imperialist shrine politics, of all that sort of stuff. My point is there's an underlying tendency, which lies from the, the basic point about it, in essence, is that marginalism and the doctrine of uh, underlying tendency towards equilibrium and the hidden hand is simply false. Capitalism needs periodic crashes to function. It needs the crashes to issue in the devalorization of large savings and heavy losses to fall on the biggest capitalists. If the states bail out, as is what they in fact did, is if the states bail out saver interests and banks in response to a financial crash, the result will be that legitimacy of liberalism as a political project is undermined and then in turn in the end, the losses will at the end of the day have to fall on savers and landowners. It's just they'll have to do so in the form of bombs falling on infrastructure, wars and large state defaults resulting from wars. There's no choice about whether the losses fall on capital values. They have to fall on capital values. It's a choice about whether you make them fall on capital values by financial losses being realised, actualised in the form of bank crashes and what's called haircuts. So after the South Sea bubble in 1720, they just said, you can't recover more than two thirds of any debt contracted in the five years before the crash. That is less painful, probably, than having far rightists come to political power and wars. I didn't know they had a debt jubilee in the 1720s. That's news to me. It's in the uh, the, the Bubble Act. It's, the Bubble Act is mostly famous for preventing, for making it, how shall I put it, uh, making it illegal to pretend to be a corporation when you haven't got a corporate charter, to advertise yourself as a company when you haven't got a corporate charter. But it uh, it also contained this uh, haircut provision. Very interesting. So, Mike, let's talk a little bit about your book, Marxism and the Challenge of Left Unity. 
Why did you write this book? Okay, it started as a um, series of articles in the Weekly Worker newspaper. What triggered it was a debate which was going on in the French Ligue Communiste Revolutionnaire before they embarked on this adventure of the Nouveau Parti anti-capitaliste about what is revolutionary strategy. And in essence, you had on the one hand, broadly speaking, the leadership tendency who were clinging to the old-fashioned, not old-fashioned, but the 1960s strategy of general strike. And on the other hand, you had the tendency which was going down the road of uh, an electoral alternative and was also advocating uh, rule of law politics and various other stuff, so that it was uh, a Trotskyist version of Eurocommunism, which, of course, the French didn't have proper Eurocommunism in the in the way in which we had Eurocommunism in this country as a precursor to straightforward neoliberalism. So the the Trotskyists going down the road of neo of Eurocommunism seemed to me to be an interesting thing to write about. I just wound up writing article after article, trying to work through this strategy issue, and we wound up publishing it as a book. Eurocommunism was a trend which started with the guys who were hostile to the Soviet intervention in Czechoslovakia in 1968, and they became advocates of parliamentarism. Actually, also against the class, they were the, the, in, certainly in Britain, it was Britain probably before anybody anywhere else, but also, well, in the United States as much as in Britain, but in Britain before anywhere, most more, they were advocates of uh, what become, became known as inter, has become known as intersectionality, that you abandon the idea of class as a political significant element and propose instead a coalition of various forms of the oppressed. You do that together with uh, overt commitments to, to supporting the constitutional order. So we wound up, the upshot of this was that the Eurocommunists in Britain and in Italy dissolved the party and created what they called the Democratic Left. In Italy, it still exists. It's called the Democratic Party. It's centre-left, centre-centre, Blairite. Would, would this include the centre-left party in Ireland as well? I, have, I don't know. I don't know enough about Irish politics, but it could well be that that's true of the democratic left in Ireland as well. Certainly the democratic left, there was democratic left in Britain didn't last very long as a formed political organisation. They dissolved and, into a network and then the network dissolved into a uh, think tank. But the, the, the Eurocommunist trend, Spain, it was big. I'm not sure what became of the Spanish. The peace, the Spanish Communist Party was quite big, but Santiago Carrillo was a big, big wheel in Eurocommunism. Similarly, there's a Fernando Claudin, Comintern to Cominform, argues that the whole project of the Communist International was just sectarian. It was never the case that there was any virtue in it at all. It was always been better to stay with the Second International. And of course, the Eurocommunists in Britain, I'd say Jack Straw, I don't know if he was ever a member of the old official party, but he was certainly a fellow traveller of the official party. And when uh, some guy, some ignorant journalist accused him of having been a trot in his student days, he said, no, I was taught by Bert Ramelson, who was the industrial organiser of the old CP, to recognise all the things which were wrong with Trotskyism. He was uh, uh, prepared to stand up in the uh, Guardian in the early 2000s or late 1990s and overtly defend his history as a Stalinist. <laughs> <sighs> 
So there are various other people, similarly, who came out of that Eurocommunist trend and became Blairites. If it is the case that the Irish democratic left come from that Eurocommunist pedigree, it would make a lot of sense from what I know about them. They ended up merging the democratic left into the Irish Labour Party and all of them became members and senior members, even the leaders of the Irish Labour Party. And they were a part of the government that drove through the really harsh austerity post the 2008 crash. Wouldn't be surprising. It wouldn't be surprising at all. Because if you think about straw or a um, whole load of... As I, I can't say I, off the top of my head, I can't uh, remember the names of the other people who were ex-communists or ex-fellow travellers who became Blairite ministers. In a sense, actually, Gordon Brown, to some extent, he was more traditional old Labour than these guys, but there was an element in what he wrote when he was young, which was within the framework of this stuff. So getting back to the book, you had a critique of this general strike strategy. Can you explain what that critique is? Okay, the critique of the general strike as a strategy is is very straightforward. Of course, the general strike as a strategy is, in essence, it's Bakunin against Marx in the early 1870s. And the problem with it is fairly straightforwardly, you stop everything, you stop production. Suppose the general strike actually works. We all go on strike. Buses stop, the petrol tankers stop, the electrical power supplies stop. Nobody does any repair and maintenance on the water supply. Well, the pumps stop for the water supply. Food, food is no longer delivered to the towns and so on and so forth. The reality is that it's not the case that you can actually stop production in that sense. All you do is you dislocate production. And what you have to do is you have to take over. But then the consequence is it's not true that you can have the general strike and the general strike leads to the formation of councils of action, Soviets and so on and so forth. And you have a long period of uh, dual power of uh, the Soviets coming to recognise that they need to overthrow the state and so on. The, all of this stuff, which is built on the image of the revolution in terms of February to October 1917, you have to have a provisional government very goddamn quickly because otherwise everything's falling apart. And in fact, it's reasonably clear that the way the fact the Russians were able to get away with it partly was because there was in fact a bourgeois provisional government during the period February to October. Partly was because the low level of development so in Germany and in Austria, we get the story is absolutely clear. The workers took the power. The workers took over the, took, took over the factories, the troops mutinied, blah, blah, and they formed these councils, the Reta, and then they sent delegations to the leadership of the Social Democratic Party and said, now what do we do? Because they needed, as soon as you've done that, as soon as you've taken over production, you need planning. You need coordination at the centre. And in order to get that coordination at the centre, you need a government. You can't do without a government. You can't do without a central leadership. And of course, the social democracy said in Germany and in Austria, oh, God, don't do that. Give it back to the capitalists. Now, the, 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 I don't know what the argument for Abert, for all I know, the man was a policeman, but what the argument of Abert and Scheidemann and Noska was in relation to that course of action. But we do know what the argument of Otto Bauer and his comrades in the Austrian social democracy was. 
it was we've got the power in all the towns we've got all the factories and so on and so forth but the right wing still has a majority in the countryside and moreover if we take power and fight a civil war against the countryside we will have italian military intervention and we will lose the problem with that was of course the italians were just about to have a very similar revolutionary crisis so that if as everybody says the the germans say we can't do this because say the germans said we can't do this because the allied troops who are in the rhineland will intervene the problem is the allied troops were actually mutinying about having been kept in the rhineland and not being demobilized so that everybody using within a single country perspective you wind up with nobody taking the power but the flip side of it is the general strike strategy doesn't solve the problem you have to have a political leadership. It poses the question of political leadership. And having a group of school of the sort that the various left groups, you know, something of the size of the Socialist Workers' Party, absolutely not enough. You need some you need a party of some minimum tens or hundreds of thousands to be able to to do things. You can see this, the reverse side of this in Cuba, in the sense that they in Cuba in 1959-60, the state actually falls apart. Guys in the army desert and throw their uniforms and weapons away and go home. The uh, Castro group marches into Havana with 200 militants. Who takes over? The answer is the Popular Socialist Party, the Cuban Communist Party, because although the Cuban Communist Party has got a whole lot smaller in the 1950s, in, in the late 1940s, the Cuban Communist Party was of a size equivalent to having a party of 8 million in this country. And so it's still got large periphery of ex-members. The Cuban Communist Party is capable of organising the political order. The July 26 movement is incapable of doing so. So if we look at the Egyptian revolution of 2011, we see that the general strike there didn't work at all. Well, you don't actually get as far as a general strike, really, in Egypt. And you certainly you don't get as far as the troops disobeying orders. comes close to it, but the army, the generals, have enough sense to dump the previous president and uh, put the Muslim Brotherhood in. And, of course, then the Muslim Brotherhood behave in such a way. The Muslim Brotherhood are capable of making a revolution from the point of view of being an organisation with mass roots and so on and so forth uh, throughout uh, Egypt, but what they then do with it, because of the uselessness of uh, Islamic fundamentalism, they spend more time on, rather than trying to get the society sorted out, the constitutional order sorted out, they just use it as an opportunity, they're having being in government as an opportunity to settle scores against the secularists, which then, of course, produces a big reaction back against them. And the army is able to come in with celebration from the, the far left, including the SWP's co-thinkers in Egypt, celebrate the army at the second military coup. I heard a statistic saying that the protests in favour of the military coup were the biggest protests in human history. In favour of it, yeah. It's not terribly surprising because it's it, it sort of you've got this idea of that we'll make the revolution without having a previous mass party. There is, in fact, a mass party, which is the mass party of Islamism funded by Saudi. But it's shit. <sighs> then people say, well, hey, always keep a hold of nurse for fear of finding something worse. The Libyans have learned that, too, in a sense, though they're stuck because the Gaddafi regime, which one might 
it's not terribly nice to characterize it as nurse, but what they've got is certainly worse. The Syrians pretty much have. It's now quite widespread, widely believed by opponents of the Iranian regime that it's far better to have the Iranian regime than what the Americans have done to Iraq. The idea of the general strike as a revolutionary strategy is in substance, as opposed to a tactic, it's quite possible that there might be moments when you want to call a general strike. But the idea of the general strike as a revolutionary strategy is trying to, it's a way of trying to get round the failure of the left to organize and imagine that if we can just get people out on the street and out on strike, that it will spontaneously move in our direction. In contrast to this idea of general strike, you have this idea of a strategy of patience. Can you tell us about this? I, I characterized it in the book as Kautsky, but it's actually mistaken. It's August Babel and Wilhelm Liebknecht, who constructed this strategy. And in essence, what it is, is we think that the existing capitalist state will in due course get into deep difficulties, fall apart, fall into crisis. But in order for there to be uh, socialism as an alternative to that, what can be the alternative to that is the idea that the working class as a class can run society. And the possibility of the working class as a class running society arises because the working class as a class, precisely because it is separated from the means of production, that is to say, because it's not small artisans and peasants who have their own means of production, or for that matter, dentists, but people who have to work for other someone else and separate from the means of production. The consequence is that workers are impelled to organize collectively. Yeah, forced to simply because just in order to defend immediate interests, it's necessary to organize in trade unions. Okay, the trade unions are very weak at the moment, but how historically weak they are, as opposed to they're massively weaker than they were in the Cold War period. But then there's a comment in by Trotsky in the transitional program of all places that uh, trade unions can never organize more than the top 20% of the working class. I think that's bright. I haven't got it to hand which just reflects the fact that trade unions historically have been tended to be a whole lot weaker than they were in the period 1945 through 1980. But also cooperatives and workers, mutual funds and building societies, which were originally a working class form of cooperation, not exactly cooperation, but mutualism, and collectivist political parties, all of which different forms in the same way it seems to me the uh, to some extent the great surge into the Labour Party with Corbynism is a symptom of that except it, it, it comes in the form of a surge into a political party rather than being a surge into trade unions and strike action because people can see very little have difficulty in seeing success in trade unions and strike action but can see the possibility the tiny tiny possibility of change through uh, making a, uh, remaking the Labour Party as a real mass party. And so the point is that the working class the, of the strategy of patience is that the working class, by organising itself and educating itself and building not only trade unions and co-ops and workers' parties and uh, mutual funds, but workers' sports clubs and workers' newspapers, the Social Democratic Party in Germany had local newspapers in most cities, workers' shooting clubs and uh, blah, 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 
workers cycling, all these different things. And the same is true of the women workers organisations separate from the organisations of the uh, 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 managerial women is one of the things. There's a recent piece by Dan Guido or coming out piece by Dan Guido and a colleague in Argentina about this. By doing this, the working class learns and develops itself as a class which is capable of taking decisions, collective decisions, and implementing them, and in turn is capable of taking over and organising as a consequence of that, taking over and organising production, taking over and organising the state. And it's the development of this capability creates in turn the image of socialism as a possible future, as opposed to just a, a fantasy. So that the possibilities of uh, the early 20th century, which were real possibilities, were created by the prolonged period of constructive work building the movement beforehand, which was not just Germany is the sort of the most famous and the biggest and all of that, but uh, it was also happening in France, it was also happening in Spain, it was also happening in Italy, it was also happening in the Netherlands, it was also happening in an odd way in the UK in the early years of the Labour Party. So that this that's what is meant by the strategy of patience. It's not saying we are loyal to the constitution. It's not saying we think that the constitution, that the society can be gradually changed so that the working class can take over. It's saying simply, we think that the capitalist class is going to screw things up really badly. The regime is going to screw things up really badly. We can, by self-help, build up our organisations and our skills to the point where when things really do screw up, we can uh, intervene and take over. That was their conception. That was the essence of their conception. Did I read in the book, am I right in saying that it was also Marx and Engels' conception of how to build up the communist movement? I think it's very difficult to pin down what Marx and Engels, what I understand is that pin difficult to pin down, certainly there's elements of this idea in the famous 1850 address to the communist parties which the trotskyists have used as the charter for their permanent revolution conception a lot of talk about the working class building up its own organizations and so on similarly in relation to the first international a lot of talk about the need for the working class to go beyond the guerrilla struggle as they characterized it of strikes and stuff like that and begin to organize its own collective pursuit of working out of its own policy. So quite a lot of what the First International did was working out things like what should socialist educational policy be? What should socialist housing policy be? Okay, they debated this stuff. Yeah. And it's the organizing work. So that's it is certainly in there. I don't want to say, well, no, let's put another thing which is in there also is the idea of workers' political action, that the workers' party has to stand in elections, has to put forward a political program for a political alternative to the state order. That's certainly in Marx and Engels as well. But I don't want to say that the whole scheme of the you know, Second International is, is all there in Marx and Engels. Because uh, they lived most of their lives working in small fragmentary lefts, 
working with big movements with the British trade union movement in the 1860s and uh, with the you know, French Proudhonists in the same period, but with very much smaller movements in the 1850s and still in the 1870s and early 1880s with pretty small movements. It's the, the, the big breakthrough of the Second International is in the later part, is in the 1880s, 1890s. And I think Engels certainly, he was uncomfortable with some of the things that Liebknecht and Babel were prepared to do is, as compromises with the Lasallians or with the Cathedra Socialist and the guy who were the academic, academic national socialists of the late 19th century in Germany. National socialists not meaning Nazis, but meaning advocates of state intervention and protectionism. So Engels was not wholly comfortable with all of this, with this stuff. But at the same time, he was uh, quite gung-ho for the idea of building up the workers' organisation. And in Can Europe Disarm, which is really quite late, and his 1890s right introduction to the pamphlet Class Struggles in France, Engels argues, in essence, that the essence of revolutionary strategy is to subvert the ranks of the armed forces through winning mass political support to reach a point where the armed forces, the ranks of the armed forces are not willing to act against you. He says, he says, essentially, having barricade fighting isn't going to work under modern conditions. The artillery will just take the barricades down. But you can take the route which was taken by the Christians that they won over enough of the ranks in the late Roman Empire. They won over enough of the ranks of the armed forces that the army was couldn't be used against them. I'm not sure if I really believe that about the late Roman Empire, but it's a nice, it's an interesting idea that in essence, if you win large enough political support, your political support will reach into the armed forces and indeed into the police. The Bolsheviks in 1917, when Lenin had to go into hiding after the July days, he was hidden by a chief of police in Finland. So concomitant with this idea, the strategy of patience, you have this idea that you want to get away from putschism or a small faction taking power. I know this is an impossible question to answer, but how big do you think you need to get before you can take power successfully? Do you need to be 55% or, you know, what are your thoughts on that? In order to actually introduce socialism, you're going to have to have majority support. But how you get that clear majority support, you can't say what we will do is we will keep campaigning in elections and campaigning in elections and starting with 1% will wind up with 55%. We have to campaign in elections. That's, that's undoubtedly the case. But there may well be circumstances in which your support, if you've already got a big organisation, that your support moves very abruptly, that yeah, there's a fantastical flow, rapidity of flow of this stuff. So I, Germany, we've just been thinking about the German revolution is 100 years ago in recent days, as it were. It's pretty clear that at the outbreak of the German revolution, the USPD had much more support than its ostensible numbers made appear that there'd been a radical movement. Or in the Bolshevik, in the Russian Revolution, the dissolution of the Constituent Assembly was justified not because the Constituent Assembly is a bad principle and the Soviets is a good principle, which was some of the explanation they give, but simply because the 
party lists for the constituent assembly had been drawn up when the party was still controlled by the pro-war right and between the time of the party list being drawn up and the constituent assembly actually meeting the srs have been taken over by the left the left srs but they weren't represented in the party list for the constituent assembly so that the consequence was the constituent assembly was wildly unrepresentative because politics has shifted between the time of the formation of the party lists and the actual summoning of the assembly so that there's all these guys voted for the SRs thinking they were voting for the left SRs who were in government together with the Bolsheviks when in fact the lists were of a whole load of other people in the same way we probably got it that we can just imagine a general election taking place now if it took place now it would and the Labour Party was returned with a majority it would return a majority of the Labour right because the Labour right still has most of the MPs and parliamentary candidates and hey, what was what would likely to happen? The answer is they say, oh, sorry, we can't have confidence in Jeremy Corbyn. Let's do something else. The the fluidity of the situation between February and October, but the same is true of uh, the fluidity of the political politics in December, January, December nineteen eighteen, January, February, March nineteen nineteen. That the decline of the SPD and then its rise again when the USPD is unable to take decisive action. My point is, what what certainly isn't the case is you can't jump with a few thousand people to leap from a few thousand people to mass support, except in very exceptional circumstances. The Chinese Communist Party did something like that. Not quite sure how. I think they were in entry in the Kuomintang and uh, they broke off a whole wing of the Kuomintang to form the eventual Chinese Communist Party. But it ain't the case that you can say the Socialist Workers' Party will now win the masses. You need to set out to do the long-term work. So you have this idea of the strategy of a slow build-up of general socialist forces and and a party. And then once a crisis strikes, you are ready and prepared for the large shifts in political support that can suddenly flow into your party and you can ride the coattails of this wave into a revolutionary period. You have to be there. And you have to be there, yeah. With something which is not just a grouplet. Moreover, the other thing about it, this is again from the Iranian comrades, it's not good enough to have a lot of members but still think like a grouplet because the Fedayeen in the Iranian revolution got up to, I don't know how many members it was, but it was something near 100,000 members, but they were still thinking like a group of uh, 500 to 2,000. They couldn't make that membership into a party party, partly, I guess, because they were all thinking about the People's Front and not about uh, a programme and not about any long-term strategic conception. But you can get very big and still be thinking small. I sense there's a sense in which that's also true of the guys in the uh, leadership of the Stop the War Coalition in 2003-2004. The SWP people were thinking about a way to build the SWP rather than a way to convert the anti-war movement into a, a party, to build a party based on, in that sense, on the anti-war movement. George Galloway was thinking about building a party based on the anti-war movement, but he had his own problems. 
it was big event partly because the state was split down the middle about it. So there were guys who were briefing in favour of that demonstration out of the foreign office, out of the security services. And the consequence of that was similarly that there was a split down the middle in the big mass media. I'm not saying you could have straightforwardly made a mass party out of the party of 500,000. The point was simply that the leaders of Stop the War insofar as it was the SWP, they were just thinking about having more big demonstrations on which they could sell more socialist workers and recruit more people to the SWP. They didn't have a real thought beyond that. Galloway, I'm not quite sure was what was going on with Galloway, because he could have done a big deal political thing if he'd actually just walked out of the Labour Party at the moment when the war broke out and called for a new party after he got kicked out of the Labour Party. And then the other side of it was they were all, Galloway and all the other participants in respect, they were absolutely determined to retain top-down control, just like the Blairites, not allow creativity at the base. That, of course, sterilised the whole thing. Okay, so getting back to the book a bit, you mentioned in the book two main critiques of Lenin that I could see. One was the idea of not going for the revolution without enough support from the people. This is the idea, the strategy of patience we've been talking about. And the other one is the application of Lenin, of something Marx and Engels said about a revolution in Russia in the 1870s, bringing forth a wave of revolutions across Europe at that time that this was misapplied because at that time the British, I think, were paying the Russians to put down some revolutions across the continent. And the situation was much different in the post-World War One, 1917-1918 period. Can you talk about these? Okay, so the, 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 the first point is um, popular support. My understanding of the situation is that the part largely affected by Rabinowitz's work on the history of the Russian Revolution, but in essence, that the, the left SRs were the majority party of the peasantry. The Bolsheviks became, over the course of 1917, the majority party of the urban working class. They had been the majority party of the urban working class in terms of political representation in 1912, but they'd been knocked back in 1913-14. But the urban working class was, of course, a very small section of the Russian population. And there could be no, this is the one, again, it's a problem with the way in which Trotsky is right about the Russian Revolution. There couldn't possibly be a revolution that overthrew the Tsarist regime without the backing of the peasantry. That was possible in October because... The left SRs, they didn't go into formal coalition with the Bolsheviks and for a few weeks, but they went into informal coalition with the Bolsheviks. They were behind the October Revolution, and then they went into formal coalition with the Bolsheviks in, uh, I can't know how many, little later. So that was a majority coalition. And the problem, essentially, was that in Brest-Litovsk, there was no majority for Brest-Litovsk. There was no majority for accepting the Treaty of Brest-Litovsk in the Communist Party, in the Bolshevik Party. There was no majority, certainly no majority in the Soviets for accepting the Treaty of Brest-Litovsk because the left SRs were a guinea. And Lenin persuaded Trotsky and the centre group to come over to his position and thereby forced it through the Bolshevik Party that they would accept the Treaty of Brest-Litovsk. 
the left SRs didn't accept it. The Bolsheviks then went on to rig the Soviet elections by just falsify the ballot, rig the ballot in order to uh, give themselves a majority. But of course, giving themselves a majority in the Soviet elections didn't give themselves a majority in the country in any sense. So then having rigged the ballot, left SRs break out. And of course, the left SRs, their history as the SRs was they're a terrorist organization. So they launched terrorism against the Bolshevik minority government. So now the Bolsheviks return with terrorism against the left SRs and against all sorts of political opponents. And this is the context, is the moment at which the German revolution is breaking out. And it's very clear from not just what Luxembourg wrote about it, but other authors, that what they saw was not the revolution of the very large majority, which was what had happened in October through January, February, but the Bolsheviks exercising a terroristic dictatorship as a minority. And then that makes the idea of the dictatorship of the proletariat of working class rule look bleeding unattractive, if that's what it means. Yeah, That's the problem with it. That The problem is it's a trap because... If you don't accept the Treaty of Brest-Litovsk, what happens then? And I, I'm not sure. I, it's it's really is you can't. It's very. I say this in the book. It's you can't really second guess the decisions which they took under very difficult, extremely difficult circumstances because they were in. It was such difficult circumstances. In essence, uh, Hindenburg and Ludendorff stabbed Germany in the back. They thought that it was better to defeat the Bolsheviks by not making peace on reasonable terms than for Germany to win. Because if they made peace on reasonable terms in November, December, moved all the troops to the Western Front rather than trying to hold on to Ukraine and Poland and the Baltics and all of that stuff, uh, they could well have actually knocked France out of the war, not, in fact, knocked both Britain and France out of the war in the spring offensives in 1918. But they didn't quite bring enough troops to the front to knock Britain and France out of the war in spring 1918. And they didn't because they were still holding down Russia. But then the consequences, it's an absolute fucking, what the hell do you do if you, you go? I think probably you have to accept what the majority of the, the majority of the country is not willing to make peace in that situation in spring 1918. Rather than rigging, you know, you've poisoned by rigging the ballot, you've ri- you've poisoned your, your relationship forever. What was the other one? Um, yes, was there going yeah. to be a domino effect westwards? And the point was, it was never likely. If if we look at the domino effect in Southeast Asia, Vietnam was the most powerful country. If we look at the French Revolution and the phase of Revolutionary War, etc., France was the most powerful country in Europe in the 1790s, apart from Britain. And so it was relatively easy for the French Revolution with new technology and new new military technology and new social forces, widespread mass mobilization to overrun the Netherlands, Germany, Switzerland, Italy, Spain. Though at the end of the day, that turned out to be a slightly poisoned chalice because the Brits were able to mobilize nationalism against them. But it was never terribly likely that you're going to get a domino effect from a backward country, which Russia is, to more advanced countries. Between the, the setup of the Congress of Vienna in 1815, which continued certainly down to 1848, and in a sense afterwards, though I'm not so sure that it did so far so much afterwards, 
was essentially that Russia was available as a gendarme, as a police force with Cossacks to come into Central Europe or even to France in 1815 in the interests of the British state. And then it was Marx and Engels' idea that therefore, if we knock Russia out of the picture, that's going to trigger revolutionary movement. But that's slightly, there's a point which is slightly different, which is it's undoubtedly the case that the Russian Revolution in a sense, did trigger, it just didn't trigger, how shall I put it, it didn't trigger revolution via the domino effect, that Russia's fallen and therefore the everything else. It triggered revolution via the fact that it was a socialist revolution, that it was um, the working class trying to take power. Then, that then people thinking, hey, if the Russians can try and take power, why can't we buggers in Germany slash in Italy slash in France slash in Britain, etc., take power? It had to be the the spread of the revolution in that sense had to be. This is particularly addressed to the effort to take Poland, which was not a stupid idea. It wasn't a stupid idea to try and get the Red Army to the borders of Germany and to persuade the German Communist Party to launch an adventurist putsch in spring 1921, and thereby that would be the excuse for the Red Army to invade Germany. Yeah, that was what they were thinking. It wasn't a stupid idea. It was just it wasn't actually very plausible, given the uh, social relationship of forces, that Russia was a very backward country and predominantly peasant country. So another point you made in the book, which I thought was extremely interesting, was this idea of that after a revolution, the politics would be entirely changed. Say like after the Irish or the American Revolution, you can't have a royalist party. You can't have a pro-British party. The politics in the country would be entirely changed. In America, you had, I think, what was it, the Whigs and the Democrats? Yeah, the way the Americans, the, 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 the revolutionary party splits is the point. The idea of we hang on, this was against the, the ban on factions and uh, all of this stuff in 1921. The fact is the state remains in a sense uh, that the American state is a Whig party state. The British state is a Tory party state. And what we have is Tory Labour and Tory Tory. And the Americans have, in a sense, Ireland has uh, sort of, how shall I put it, both Fine Gael and Fianna Foyle are in origins split, splinters off the Republican movement, aren't they? That's right, yeah. You've got the two kind of right-wing Republican parties, Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael, both representing, say, slightly different aspects of the capitalist class, one more the corporations and one more the rentiers. It was a fascinating concept for me because, you know, it totally makes sense, but I've never thought about it before. But it seems to me if you had a communist or socialist revolution, afterwards the politics would probably be split somehow along the lines of, you know, anarchists on one side and, say, state communists on the other side. And that would be our politics after the revolution. Quite and possibly, yeah. That, that to me is like a very unifying concept for left radical politics. You know, this idea of, you know, let's have our revolution and then afterwards we can have our debates you know what I mean? It should unify. <laughs> well, we can't. In a sense, we can. We, some arguments we will have after we win. That's straightforward. Yes, that's certainly true. There are arguments which we will have after we win. I, I think probably the arguments which we'll have after we win are going to be rather unpredictable ones. 
But the arguments which we have at the moment, we have arguments on the left. My, my concern is we have a whole load of organisations which have, frankly, inexplicable differences. That, that is to say, that how the hell can you justify having the Socialist Workers' Party and the Socialist Party of England and Wales? Yeah. Once upon a time, there was justification in the sense the Socialist Workers' Party did rank and file organisations in the trade unions, and that was their big deal thing. And the Socialist Party, what was previous now the Socialist Party, was the uh, militant tendency and did entry in the Labour Party. But hey, actually, that's just tactics. That really is nothing but tactics and not really a justification for having separate parties. But there are issues, on the other hand, and that quite a lot of the book is about the issues which are real issues, which people have been going for unity, disregarding issues which are real issues. And you screw up with, as in Rifondazione in Italy, they create unity without addressing the question, should we go into government? If we're going into government, on what terms should we go into government? And then they are in government and Italy decides to intervene in Afghanistan against probably the majority of Rifondazione's will, Rifondazione goes to hell, is destroyed. I, Syriza, I guess, is that I don't, God alone knows what's going to happen to Syriza in the next set of Greek elections. But they, what's certainly the case is that Syriza has become nothing but an agency of the European Union for implementing the austerity policy and a coalition partner with the nationalist right wing. My guess would be that that's going to lead to a collapse of the Syriza's vote when we come to the next Greek general elections, but I don't know. The, the, the issue about are you going into government, are you going into coalition with capitalist parties, those are real big, real big deal issues. And you can't dodge them by saying, oh, we need a party which is agnostic between reform and revolution, because the way in which reform and revolution poses itself is precisely, are we going to go into government in coalition? Same with the Brazilian Workers' Party. Are we going to go into government in coalition? If we do so, we have to recognise that there's a real probability that the outcome of going into government and coalition is just that we produce enormous mass disappointment and at the end of it, a far-right government. Suppose what I'm trying to say, and I'm not saying it too coherently, is that just as an idea, as a concept to understand, it's a very unifying concept. Oh, yeah. That's an interesting point. It's an excellent point you're making. There's a sense in which there's the paradox is rejection of single partyism as a conception of a revolutionary state, of the uh, rejection of the idea that the revolutionary state requires you to have a single monolithic party and no factions and not, no splits, is has unifying potential because it's recognising that at the end of the day, we can have live debate, united action and live debate. Yeah, it's the, the ability to do both, the two sides, that the action, unity of action and live debate and freedom of discussion and freedom of organisation. That's potentially, but at the moment, it's a long way from that because it, if we look at the organisations, they're all committed to the 1921, the existing, most of the existing organisations are committed to the 1921 model. Which is outstandingly stupid, it seems to me. Yeah, I think so. But it seems extraordinarily difficult to get people to move. We've had uh, splits off the Socialist Workers' Party they go off the Socialist Workers' Party and then they go mad and they have a split, the, uh, I can't remember, the International Socialist 
can't remember what they called themselves, but anyhow, they split up and wiped themselves out over cultural sadomasochistic images. For God's sake, is this an issue worth having a split about? Well, it would seem inevitable from a kind of a materialist viewpoint that these splits are kind of inevitable when the actual radical left is so weak. It's a function of their weakness. I'm disinclined to believe that. I think it's a matter of your subject of subjective choices for two reasons, one of which is... That's very idealist now, Mike. I don't think it is idealist because the everything has... Everything has a subject, an agency element as well as a structural element. And it's an alibi, it seems to me, to say that the uh, inability of the left unifies a structural element. Because, say, for example, the SPD in Germany was created by unification of the Eisenacher group, which had about eight or nine thousand members, and the Lasallian group, which had about twelve or fifteen thousand members. I can't remember the exact figure, so I'm talking off the top of my head here. I'm just giving approximate dimensions. And the critical mass effect produces the result of the unification of these two groups very rapidly, becomes much, much bigger. The same is true of Rifondazione. It started out with a unification of a uh, largish splinter faction of the Italian Communist Party. We didn't want to go down the left, democratic left route with uh, two or three of the Italian far left groups. And the snowball effect produces a massive growth. The Brazilian Workers' Party, I see the upshot is no good, but the same is true of the Brazilian Workers' Party. The, you start off with a relatively weak trade union movement. It's still a trade union movement, okay, so it's a different thing. But at the same time, uh, a lot of the initial cadre are provided by uh, half a dozen different left groups. And again, the dynamic of unity. The American Socialist Party in the 1900s, similarly, the French SFIO, Section Francaise de l'International Ouvrière, created by unification of groups. The Scottish Socialist Party, again, disaster at the end of the day. Actually, rather the same sort of disaster as the international socialist guys, because splitting over Tommy Sheridan's sex life was sort of, it seemed to be equally stupid as splitting over Chairgate. What was Chairgate? If you remember, there were two splits of the Socialist Workers' Party one of which is still around, Revolutionary Socialism in the 21st century, and the other of which has died. I can't remember what it's called, International Socialist Tendency. They split and broke up over the use of an image of an Alan Jones chair. You know Alan Jones, uh, 1970s pop artist, and one of the things he did was fetish images of uh, women in uh, leather gear as chairs. And is this uh, acceptable for somebody on a left-wing website to use this image? Or is it, uh, I can't remember the exact, I, I have no recollection of the exact details of the split. Yeah, but they called it, it got, got called Chairgate after a while as a matter of humour. I'm just looking at a picture of it there now. I might have to use this as the cover image for this episode, Mike. In honour of it. <laughs> My point is that the it's very clear from the all these different episodes that if you consciously decide to unify, there's a oomph, there's a there's a, there's a snowball effect, and that th- there should be a snowball effect out of the conscious decision to unify follows from the logic of the fact that the working class needs to organise in order to get anything done. That there's going to be a strong gut instinct of the working class in favour of unity, sometimes one which is betrays itself in the sense you cling on to unity 
even when your party has become controlled by scabs or your union has become controlled by scabs, but nonetheless, you cling on to unity. There's this strong gut instinct. And then the strong gut instinct just has the effect that if you consciously make the decision to unify, that's going to have a snowball effect. Conversely, if you read Rabinowitz's The Bolsheviks in Power, I can't remember which page it is. He gives us the composition of the First Congress of Soviets. And there's big Bolshevik faction, there's a big left SR faction, there's right SR faction, there's Menshevik faction. But there's a whole load of uh, different, about 20 different anarchist and left communist groups of one sort and another, also represented electorally in this Congress of Soviets. So that the mass, the fact that the party has become mass, that the, the movement has become mass, doesn't actually get rid of all the political differences and so on and so forth. Engels, I think, somewhere makes the point that the left is bound to splinter because it stands for freedom of expression. Oh, God. (laughs) This idea you have in the book about the strategy of patience is also linked to this idea of not forming a coalition government. Essentially, you have a minimum program. Your minimum program is your minimum conditions for entering into government. So our minimum program, for example, includes people's militia winding up the current form of the armed forces and a whole load of other very radical democratic changes. In essence, what's being said is the, the, the and this was the, certainly this was the Babel line, we will enter into government if you're prepared. We'll join the government with anybody who's prepared to go along with in implementing the minimum program. We're not saying we won't enter into government at all, but we won't, not one penny, not one man for this system. We insist on overthrowing the constitution is the basis of our willingness to enter into government. We don't propose to take responsibility for running the government on, on under its present order. We're perfectly willing to take responsibility if people are willing to entrust us with responsibility for overthrowing it. That's the idea. So the critique of that is, why would anybody ever vote for somebody who's never going to enter into government? Well, in the first place, it's it's not true that you can't do anything without being in government. And here, paradoxically, the Corbyn movement is a wonderful illustration of our point. The Blair and Brown and Miliband defined their politics entirely in terms of what do we do, what concessions do we have to make to capital in order to get into government. And then in government, of course, what they do is uh, just do more pro-capitalist policy. Corbyn says, I want to make radical changes. In point of fact, actually, his platform is very tame. (laughs) He's not very mild indeed, but he's given the impression that he wants to make radical changes and has got, as a result of that, giving the impression, and of course, the capitalist class by attacking Corbyn as a dangerous leftist. The Labour Manifesto for 2017 proposed to repeal the 2016 Trade Union Act, but not any of the previous anti-trade union legislation. What the hell? But Corbyn nonetheless is seen as a dangerous leftist and then as a result of that gets a whole lot of votes. And the upshot of that is that the government has backed off very substantially in relation to austerity, cuts, all that agenda. And has started talking left, not actually doing anything yet, but talking left about housing, about jobs, 
and uh, uh, so on and so forth. So the point is that you can, and indeed, it's also the case, suppose you had a large party which was willing to enter into coalitions in Parliament for the overthrow of the degree of control that government has over the parliamentary agenda and force through private members' legislation, you could make changes in make legal changes in parliament by private members' legislation. One thing which you can't do is you can't increase taxes and spend more money. That's uh, something which uh, you need to have a government for. But quite a lot of th there are a lot of things which one could do from opposition and through parliamentary struggle, which is parliamentary struggle. We're backed by opposition external to parliament and so on and so forth without actually forming the government. Whereas in contrast, if you say we everything you have has to be subordinated to forming the government and then you find that you've made so many commitments, concessions in order to get near government that you can't do anything of substance. The Blair administration came in. I was talking to somebody the other day making the same point that the Blair administration came in quite plainly with no actual policies. So they passed a whole load of these uh, law commissions. There's this law commission is a law reform set up which goes through doing these wonderful plans for law reform of one sort and another and technical areas which are never going to attract enormous amounts of uh, public attention. And the first years of the Blair administration, a whole load of these uh, boring law commission reforms got passed through Parliament, plainly because the government, the Blairites came in with no idea of anything that they wanted to do. They were just going to continue policies of the outgoing major administration with marginal. Gordon Brown did have a policy, but it was one of doing marginal redistribution by stealth. And Irish politics, every small party that went into power with party of power usually was Fianna Fáil. Every time they went in, if there was a scandal in the government, it would not affect the major party. It would destroy the small party. So party after party would go in, whether it was the Greens, the Labour Party would get destroyed afterwards. It showed that they were to be stronger outside of government than in. It's just strange. It, 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 it seems paradoxical. But then, in a sense... I don't think it's terribly paradoxical because it's uh, the whole idea that it has to be government is at the end of the day, uh, the mechanisms devised by government whips office to keep control of parliament in the 18th century England, which has then been copied all over the world, that you can have electoral representation, but neuter it by saying you can't really do anything unless you're in government. And then it turns into uh, the political game is a game of the ins and the outs. The two big parties, it pushes into this thing of two big parties, both groups of which are careerists and therefore likely to be corrupt. Or indeed, you may want to go in. I was said, I think, by people in the Workers' Party in Brazil, OK, we don't deny that there's been some corruption, but how else are you going to get a parliamentary majority in this fragmented political system? This is true, not just in the fragmented political system. I can't, Austin Mitchell, I think it was. I'm not sure if it was Austin Mitchell or one of the other MPs in that area told a story of selling his vote to the whips in exchange for a bridge being built in his constituency. Well, that's very standard Irish politics, that is. Absolutely standard American politics as well. It's just usually kept behind closed doors in the UK.
Well, huh, I, I don't think it's actually even kept behind closed doors in Ulster, but it's actually always going, all going, goes on in uh, English politics as well. It's just kept kept relatively quiet. One last question before we tie it up is just on the strategy of patience. It strikes me that Sinn Féin in Northern Ireland are following that strategy when it comes to their idea of, say, uniting Ireland. It's an interesting twist for um, the Republican side. Ah, that's an interesting idea. I'm not sure that it exactly works because, of course, they went into government under the GFA arrangements. They went into coalition with the DUP. Interesting. I, God alone knows. I, you know, I know virtually nothing about Irish politics. So I just I observe wholly from the outside all this stuff about Brexit and Remain and Theresa May having to bribe the DUP periodically with large watches of money. I suppose the idea I was getting towards there is not so much the entering government or not, but the Certainly Irish... having a long term orientation, long term strategy. The ballot box yes. in the other light was a uh, ambiguous strategy, but it was not intended to, as far as I understand it, to result in the short-term overthrow of the uh, uh, six counties regime by a mass insurrection. Yes, and it's morphed into you know the ballot box and the, but also a yeah. demographic. Yeah, strategy. hope for demographic victory. I'm always skeptical of those ones because what you're depending on is projecting a trend forward. And it's like the guys who were writing about in the late 19th century about how, well, a bit earlier in the 1860s, 1870s, they were talking, writing about, quote, peak coal, unquote, that the UK was about to run out of coal and the economy would take a downturn. And then in the 1880s, 1890s, they were writing about how London was going to be totally and utterly buried in horse shit because of the number of ha horse-driven vehicles in on the streets of the city being done is to take a current trend and just project it forward without uh, thinking about what else is going on i think that with Sinn Féin there's okay the demographic picture is one which uh, disfavors the Ulster Protestants in the current trend but it, a it's perfectly possible that the Ulster Protestants will move their shift their fertility or B, that it might well turn out to be the case that Sinn Féin pursuing the policy that it's pursuing and uh, growth of the Catholic population, you wind up with Catholic loyalism towards the uh, British state. I don't know about that. I don't think it's terribly likely. I just What I'm getting at is simply I want to be cautious about the, the, the my understanding of the strategy of patience is that the basis of it is that the two claims that are going to be being made in essence that capital will fuck up. Well, in a sense, we can already see that. What was bizarre about the SPD was, of course, capital did fuck up in 1914, and the SPD fucked up with it. <laughs> elected back, uh, it's quite an interesting process. Okay, we know now that Bethman Holweg went and met with the German trade union leaderships and offered them major concessions in exchange for war votes. That's side one. And side two is the whole chunk of the left, which is the Parvus and his co-thinkers who formed the De Glocker group, became pro-German on the basis that the uh, US, British imperialism was then what US imperialism is now. And just as one can be pro-Putin as a way of being opposed to US imperialism, which is a fatuous idea, one could be pro-Kaiser as a way of being opposed to British imperialism. 
made more sense from point of view of Parvus, who was in Constantinople, and he says to the Turks, hey, if you join on the German side and the Germans win, you will get rid of the whole Ottoman debt administration and the chains which you're held in by the British and the French. But the consequence of it is simply it's the, the story of the standard story of the collapse of the SPD through gradualism doesn't quite work because it's much more, the truth is much more a combination of active state intervention to take the trade union leaders. Plus, actually, there's also police action against the opponents of the war in the early years of the war. But plus also, there's a really significant chunk of the left which goes for the German victory policy on the illusory idea that German, well, I don't know, I think German, it's conceivable that German victory might have been more progressive in 1914-16. Just conceivable, no more. But the point being simply, it's it's a, the, the German SPD collapses. The standard narrative is the German SPD collapses because of the strategy of patience. One of the people who argues that the German SPD collapses because of the strategy of patience is Parvus, says this strategy of patience has resulted in the German SPD being unable to take the lead, which it really needed to take, of being gung-ho, going flat out for German victory. So yes, the two basic points of the strategy of patience, one, capitalism will fuck up really badly. Two, the working class is driven to organise itself and making the connection between the working class being driven to organize itself and political collectivism and political democracy can create the means of having a real radical alternative to capitalism which we don't have right now i'm all i'm doing is just that you've been focusing which is i think probably quite right on this strategy of patience stuff and the two sides of it, that it's against general strikeism, putschism, minoritarianism on the one side, and on the other side, it's against coalitionism and entry into government, which is actually another form of impatience. Of uh, We've got to do something right now, and that means drop bombs, plant bombs, or we've got to do something right now, and that means get into government. That's That's the core of the argument. The other stuff is more, okay, if we say that, does it follow all the rest of the stuff which has become the baggage of the far left? I think some of it does, some of it doesn't. Okay, let me ask you a controversial question here. I'm new to the left, to Marxism and all that. I've never gone through the mill of going through an SWP or anything like that. I kind of thank Christ that I I never have. (laughs) Like, do we need, were we talking about long-term strategies through the interview so far, do we kind of need these semi-Stalinist, whatever we want to call them, trot organizations? Do we need that kind of political memory that still exists to kind of die off so that we can have a new politics? How should I put this? They're both a major obstacle and a whole load of people who've got a whole load of skills. And the dying off, it's this paradox about it. The left needs a profound transformation of its political culture an awful lot of people of my generation and older than my generation particularly in some ways the guys who are now in their late 60s early 70s who radicalized in the 1960s and were formed by the new left yeah a sort of a lot of people are stuck there's some there are people who come out of the official communist tradition who are not less stuck than people who come out of the trotskyist tradition 
who are stuck in repeating hamster on a wheel, Groundhog Day. We do the same thing over and over and over again. But, and the but, yeah, it is also the case that there is a whole load of stuff which is actually necessary memory, how to run a meeting, how to actually get the meeting to reach decisions, things we might do about organising action. I, I'm, doing, I'm talking at the lowest possible level. There's also a lot of, as it were, good gut instincts about the guys who ran Stop the War and who mobilised to Stop the War and so on and so forth. They had a great gut instinct that it was a bad idea, that we had the, the novelty idea of the Eustonites and such like people saying, oh, America and Britain are going to bring democracy to Iraq, create a modernised beacon of democracy in the Middle East, or at least they're going to reshape the AWL, so we're going to reshape Iraq, and it's slightly more progressive than Ba'athism. They don't say Ba'athism, they say Saddam Hussein, like the Tory press, but Ba'athism. But the, the guys who had the idea that you had to organise an anti-war movement had a sound gut instinct about what was likely to be the upshot of uh, uh, US intervention. And we, we need that, we do need that gut instinct for future left. I, it's very difficult to tell. I, I think that if we start from scratch again, that the likelihood is that we do the same bleeding things again. Those who will not learn from history are condemned to repeat it. In a sense, I think that's true of uh, the of people who come new into the Corbyn movement, that in some ways they're repeating what happened in the Labour left in the 1970s, 1980s, without a clear sense of how they could go in a different direction, partly because they haven't actually got any sort of self-critical, any critical assessment of what actually happened in the 1970s, 80s. Is that helpful? It does, yeah. Like, it just seems to me that, you know, I would definitely agree with you about people not being aware. Certainly people aren't aware of what went on in the 70s or even aware of this idea of a battle between reform and revolution. You know, we're talking about young young people. Yeah. They, they don't have that infrastructure or people to tell them in in a formalized manner but but the thing is where they would maybe get it from the revolutionary parties are so dysfunctional yes to- no that's absolutely true as i was going up the stair i met a man who wasn't there he wasn't there again today i wish to god he'd go away i can't remember who that is, is that poe there's a sort of sense of the nonness of the swp or whatever it captures it slightly. Oh, well, on that note, Mike, thanks very much for coming on the show today. Okay, thank you very much for having me on. That's been fun. On this episode, you heard the theme tune, The Order of the Pharaonic Gestures, and The Night of the Purple Moon by Sunra and his orchestra. Thank you for listening. Please join me for the next episode of From Alpha to Omega. <laughs>